is keen on. The Daily Now.TV chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 10th, 2023. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, at the end of January, there was a shocking report on the BBC website about the secretive Saudi executions. It was really shocking in many ways. Uh, stories of how many executions have been carried out in Saudi Arabia with no advance warning to the families and the way in which executions in Saudi Arabia have doubled over the last uh, seven years since 2015. Uh, the report on this, this situation in Saudi Arabia when it comes to executions was um, uh, was published by a London-based human rights organization, Reprieve. They do excellent work. And I'm thrilled that uh, the person who did the report for Reprieve on the Saudi executions, who is currently in Washington, D.C., talking uh, to Congress about uh, Saudi human rights, or perhaps the lack of Saudi human rights, is with us now, Jida Bassouni. Uh, Jeed, uh, you have a pretty awful title, Head of Death Penalty Reprieve. I know you focus mostly on the Middle East. Um, what does that involve, being, uh, being this researcher on the death penalty? So it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, my team looks at the use of the death penalty across the MENA region, but that's Middle East and North Africa specifically Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the UAE. We keep an eye on Iraq and Iran and some of the other countries. Um, and we try, I mean, our ultimate goal is abolition of death penalty, but we also know that that's a longer journey. So we look at strategic ways to chip away at it in these countries. And we do that by studying the trends in the executions in those countries and then picking strategic cases. We do in-depth casework on those cases, um, and then we do some international legal work and some advocacy and media to help spotlight those cases as part of a wider theme of an issue in that country. This report uh, on Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and the death penalty, everything you need to know about the rise of executions under Mohammed bin, Sal bin uh, Salman. How long did the report take and how extensive was it? And how difficult was it to, to get a lot of the information? Well, the report took a while. Um, thank you for giving me the credit, but there's a whole team of people who worked very, very hard on this report for several years because just the sheer volume of data was huge. I mean, we've tracked 1,234 executions between 2010 and 2021. Um, uh, and the repeat, that, repeat that because that's, it's, it's an astonishing number. It's 1,234 people, and over a thousand of those have been under the watch of Mohammed bin Salman since 2015. So the vast majority of those have been in the last six years. Um, and it took a while. It took a while to go through all the information that was publicly available by the Saudi government itself, the you know the resources for this. Uh, we've sourced it all from the Saudi press agency and the Ministry of Interior in Saudi Arabia, who published information on executions. Um, 
So we went through all of that and we double sourced everything as far as we could. Um, and it took a very long time to get the data all together and then to study the trends that we were seeing and then to try and explain some of the trends that we were seeing. It took about two, two and a half years, I would say. And the headline or the, the key headline seems to be that um, there's a connection between the coming to power of Mohammed bin Salt, uh, Salman um, and this number of, of executions. Tell us a little bit about um, uh, Mohammed bin Sultan. Uh, he's known as MBS. Uh, I'm not sure whether that term was developed by a marketing agency. Uh, but there's nothing very cute or attractive about this man, is there? No, no, indeed. Um, so Mohammed bin Salman, his father acceded to, um, to the crown in 2015. His father's King Salman. Now that time, little was known about Mohammed bin Salman. Um, I remember working at the time on Saudi Arabia. It was difficult to get information on his age, his background, who he was. Uh, but suddenly he was there. He was on the international stage. He was given progressively more important positions in his father's cabinet until 2017 when he became crown prince, which is very unusual in Saudi Arabia. This is the first time the crown will go from father to son. Um, historically, it goes down the lineage of the brothers uh, from the first king. Um, so that alone is very, very different. Um, but over the years, more information about him has come out. And he's an, he's an interesting man. Um, there's all kinds of stories as to his personality. He seems to be extremely narcissistic in many ways. Um, you know, there are stories about how he, his favorite book is uh, The Prince by Machiavelli um, and how he believes that's the correct way to, to rule through fear, um, which- There are worse books, Jeed. I mean, is he, um, does he think of himself as a, as a Catherine the Great or a, a Frederick the Great of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia trying to modernize the country, try to bring it into the 21st century? I think he does think of himself that way. He's relatively young. He's now, I think, in his late 30s, which in Saudi Arabia, that's extremely young for any kind of ruler. Um, they're usually 70, 80 plus when they come to the throne. Um, and he's ruling over a very young population. Uh, the majority of people in Saudi Arabia are under the age of 30. Um, so I do think he sees himself but as this young leader, and he's also hyper-nationalistic. He's really pushing this very intense pro-Saudi nationalism, this pride in being um, Saudi Arabian. And part of that is him projecting this image of himself and his country as moving in a more progressive direction, and that he's a reformer. Um, and part of that are things like, you know, there are now cinemas and concerts and football matches in Saudi Arabia, which would have been unthinkable only a few years ago. Um, but unfortunately, what we sought to prove with the report is that there's a much darker underbelly of what's happening in Saudi Arabia right now, beyond all these you know, so-called progressive reforms that we're seeing. We had a, a critic of the Iranian government on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, another, well, you're not based in America, an American-based opponent. Um, who claimed that Iran had the world's worst, or perhaps with North Korea, who knows how many people the North Koreans kill. Iran has amongst the worst record when it comes to executions. How does the, the, the number of Saudi executions compare to those in Iran? So as far as we're aware, um, last year in 2022, so, uh, Iran excuse me, executed 
over 500 people. Um, it will take a while to confirm that for sure, but it seems to be over 500 people, which is massive. It's a huge amount of people. Um, Saudi Arabia executed 147 people last year. So those numbers are lower, but when you look at the populations of both countries, those executions per capita aren't too far off. And the way they use the death penalty is nearly identical. I mean, one is a Sunni country and one is a Shia country, but their interpretations of Islamic judicial law when it comes to the death penalty is very similar. Um, and they are both, for example, one of the few countries left that still execute child defendants. They still use the death penalty widely for non-lethal Yeah, drugs. that was one of the most shocking things. I mean, your report was generally shocking, but the fact that minors, people, uh, I mean, you have one story of a a 14-year-old executed by the regime. Uh, I mean, this is this is truly horrifying. You mentioned Iran um, uh, as a Shia state or Shia community mostly, and, and Saudi as the heart of Sunni Islam. Are, are, are some of the executions um, uh, rooted in religious rivalries? I noted from the BBC report that a number of the people who had been executed in Saudi are Shia. So is it a, is there a, a religious tinge to, to why some people are being executed? Um, some people, I think a lot, I mean, when the, when the Arab Spring protests reached Saudi Arabia in 2011, um, a lot of the protests that we were seeing were in the eastern part of the country, um, which is predominantly Shia. They're the minority overall in Saudi Arabia. Um, but those protests weren't calling, for instance, for Shia rule or for Iranian citizenship or anything along those lines. They were calling for basic human rights under Saudi law and to be treated as equal citizens. Um, but they were a huge part of the people who've been swept up um, in anti-protest uh, crackdowns. Um, and they th that's why I think the Shia question comes up quite a lot. But I mean, what we've seen in recent years, since 2017 onwards, is um, this crackdown on Sunni scholars who are, you know, nominally of the same faith of uh, those in charge, like Salman al-Ada and Hassan al-Malki. These are two men who are prominent Sunni academics who the public prosecutor is now calling for the death penalty against them um, for non-lethal charges. In Salman's case, it's charges that are so ridiculous, things like sarcasm and mockery of the government's achievements. In Hassan's case, it's things like owning banned books um, and questioning 7th century um, Islamic figures. So they will use it against anyone that questions the status quo, whether you're Sunni or Shia. Are the jails also bulging with political prisoners? Um, I mean, obviously, they're not bulging when they're put to death. But on top of the death penalties, um, uh, has MBS uh, turned Saudi Arabia increasingly uh, into a place where any kind of criticism results in uh, imprisonment, torture, banishment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Saudi Arabia has never exactly been a country where freedom of expression has been tolerated, but it's absolutely non-existent um, under MBS. Um, and you see this in the arrests that are happening for very basic freedom of expression. And I mean, these, I really hesitate to call these people, you know, opposition to the government because they're not calling, for instance, for the overthrow necessarily of MBS, they're calling 
face to Christ, they're having conversations about what their society should look like, what Saudi Arabia should look like. Um, but anything other than you know extreme enthusiasm for MBS will not be tolerated. It's not enough to not be critical. Um, if you're not you know overjoyed constantly, then then you're in trouble. And I mean, what we've seen in the last few months, for instance, are these unprecedented prison sentences um, for tweets. So Selma Shehab is a young woman, 34 years old. She was doing her PhD at Leeds University. Um, and she was arrested and detained, and she's been given a 34-year prison sentence for retweeting other people. Um, and she's one of several cases that we've seen where people are getting very long prison sentences merely for tweeting or retweeting or sharing posts on social media that, again, are not calling necessarily, say, for revolution or anything along those lines, but are just questioning the status quo. Yeah, and the other, I mean, this is all obviously profoundly it's distasteful, troubling, and all the rest of it. But it's all on top of the, the the PR blitz that the Saudi regime, MBS in particular, seems to have unleashed on the West about uh, using sports, for example, to distract from the death penalty. You cover this in your report. Saudis just uh, invested significant amount of money in Newcastle Football Club. Um, what are the Saudis doing to... Uh, to distract us from what they're doing. Should we be very careful and skeptical of of all Saudi PR in the West? Absolutely. I think the use of sports washing under MBS has been extensive. You know, he's just brought up, uh, I say he, it's the public investment fund, which he's the chairman of. Um, so the distinction there is, you know, non-existent when I say he has brought up. Um, but he's brought, for instance, the Newcastle um, Football Club in London. They've started the Live Golf Tour, uh, which Trump is a big investor in, I believe, um, which is in the US and in Saudi Arabia. They have boxing. They want the World Cup. They're making a, a bid to host it in, in 2030. And I think it goes hand in hand with this image he's hoping will distract us from what's happening in Saudi Arabia. That because, I mean, this is, you know, we all want people in Saudi Arabia to be able to enjoy sports and concerts and all these things, but we also want them to be able to say what they want to say without being sentenced to death. Um, and I think he is gambling that if he, you know, keeps people distracted, we won't notice what's happening. There's obviously enormous wealth in Saudi Arabia, um, mostly oil wealth. The same is true of Qatar, mostly uh, gas wealth. Did the Qatari model of the last World Cup, did they get away with it? Is this a model that, a playbook that MBS now is copying? I think it was definitely very inspirational to him. He was uh, in the st stadium at the opening ceremony next to, um, I forget his name, the head of FIFA, and, you know, having a great time. I think he was definitely taking notes throughout that time. What can we do? People are going to be watching. Uh, you asked that in your in your report i mean newcastle united football fans for example will say well manchester city is owned by abu dhabi um chelsea was owned by uh, a, a putin henchman what's the difference between saudi ownership or qatari or Omani? what would you say to people who don't really want to be bothered with this I mean, there is no difference between Putin's money and the money we're seeing now. And I think 
in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine, we've seen how difficult it is for you know capitals in the Western world to distangle Russian money from their own economies. Um, it's, it's ongoing, from what I understand, to try and understand who's an oligarchy who's close to Putin and who isn't. And what we seem to be doing is punishing Putin by rewarding other dictators. And it's extremely short-sighted because you know this will blow up in our face one way or another going forward. So, so you're saying that there's a contradiction between boycotting or putting an embargo on the Russian economy and being friendly to Saudi Arabia? Absolutely. I think they both are committing, you know, these atrocious crimes against people. And either we're consistent in our messaging that human rights are for all and violations are not accepted, or we need to stop <laughs> pretending. But that to be fair Saudi to the uh, Saudi, I mean, I'm guessing they would respond, well, we didn't invade another country. It's quite... I mean, Yemen might... <laughs> might have something to say about about that. Or, I mean, or China. Been... I mean, what are the relations between MBS, for example, and Putin and China? Is there a what no. G.W. Bush once called the the a new axis of evil, of, of evil against <laughs> I mean, human rights? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use that term myself. But I mean, we do know that he does have a healthy relationship with Putin. And, you know, last November, I believe, um, MBS hosted a three-day summit for the president of China to visit Riyadh, uh, to visit Saudi Arabia, and he invited all the heads of states from the rest of the Arab world to attend, and they all cut these huge deals with China. And I mean, that, I think, is quite important to say came after um, Western medias had gone to Saudi Arabia to try and appease him, after President Joe Biden fist-bumped him and Prime Minister Boris Johnson shook his hand. I believe Emmanuel Macron had dinner with him in Paris, you know all these things to normalize him with the hope that they could keep him on side and, you know, deal with the energy crisis. And what he's instead done is invited China and Russia into his economy and into the economies of the Middle East. You're in Washington, D.C. now talking to lawmakers of one kind or another. I mean, of course, in the United States, the Khashoggi murder got a lot of attention. It seems to have disappeared now. Um, how does America, the United States, play in this? All sorts of um, headlines about Joe Biden really not being particularly interested, I think, in going after the Saudis, perhaps because Saudi is a piece of, of his alliance against Iran. What, what are you seeing in America, um, uh, Jeed, in terms of the, the geopolitics and perhaps a lack of interest politically and culturally in what's happening in Saudi Arabia? I do think there is an interest, and I think there is definitely a disappointment in the fact that, you know, Joe Biden had said famously he would make Saudi Arabia a prior state if he became president. Um, and then he released the CIA report that confirmed that. Yeah, he's backed off recently, hasn't he? Yeah, and then recently he just seems to have completely backtracked on that, which is extremely disappointing. Um, especially as you know in november with the opec decision it's just one blow after another so i think there's maybe some confusion um as to how to proceed with saudi arabia i think people thought that they could just pick up where they left off um and that doesn't seem to be happening um but there is you know also geopolitical considerations that you see not just in dc but in london you know brussels geneva people trying to figure out you know to what extent they want to push this line in terms of their own self-interest 
To be fair to Saudi Arabia, I'm not sure if it's, that's the right word, fair. I mean, there is, there are other countries in the Middle East that you study that have also terrible human rights and death penalty records. Um, you spend your life uh, reporting on this. Uh, I read a piece from you on Bahrain and Egypt. How does the Saudi record compare to other Gulf states and to Egypt? Egypt has an atrocious human rights record under President Sisi. Um, their execution numbers have been extremely high in the last decade. Um, I don't think the two are unconnected because we know that, for instance, Saudi money and money from the Emirates is one of the biggest things propping up President Sisi um, and his, his regime. Um, and that, you know, there's a lot of reasons, arguably, why um, uh, the, the Egyptian uh, revolution didn't go the way people wanted. But I think a lot of people would argue that Gulf money against freedom and democracy and rule of law was one of the deciding swings in the way Egypt has ended up. Um, and Bahrain certainly takes, you know, takes its cue from from Saudi Arabia in many ways. I mean, the death row in Bahrain is smaller than in Saudi Arabia. That's, you know, granted they haven't executed anyone in, since 2019. Um, but the way they instrumentalize the death penalty is similar across the region as this tool of oppression and fear and to send, you know, a message across to people who might question what's happening. You're of Palestinian origins, heritage, uh, Jude, so I'm guessing you have a particular interest in Israeli policy here. Donald Trump's son-in-law, of course, perhaps arguably one of the only, one of the few foreign policy achievements of the regime brokered uh, a new peace accord between Israel and some of the, the Gulf states. What are the relations between Israel and Saudi? And are the Israelis turning a convenient blind eye to what the Saudis are up to? I think Saudi Arabia, every now and again, you hear that they are looking for the same normalization deals as other parts of the region. And then there's such a backlash that those stories get retracted. Uh, but there's undoubtedly a relationship and has been for, I mean, longer than even before Trump's presidency, a relationship between Tel Aviv and Riyadh. Um, I think one of the unifying factors between a lot of these countries is the sphere of Iranian expansion. Whether that's a well-founded fear or not is, you know, besides the point. Um, but I think there's this allyship that's emerged um, in reception to this perceived threat. Gee, you mentioned earlier that MBS reads Machiavelli's The Prince, one of his favorite books. I'm sure he reads it in a certain way. And I'm sure Machiavelli would necessarily approve. But there is a very cynical way of reading um, Machiavelli's Prince, which suggests that democracy doesn't work. And the only way to rule is through the whip of one kind or another. And, and, and a defender of MBS might say, well, yes, perhaps there are some indiscretions, some excesses. But when compared, for example, to Syria or even Iraq, uh, things in Saudi Arabia aren't so bad. How, how would you respond to that kind of defense of the rather brutal authoritarianism of MBS? I mean, I think as someone, you know, from the region, I just, I want more for the region than the bar to be set as low as, you know, what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Iraq. And 
I want more for the people of Saudi Arabia. I, you know, when people say, well, democracy doesn't work, it doesn't work for who? You know, it doesn't work for the people who don't want to be questioned, want to stay in power for 60, 70 years and do what they like without any consequences. It doesn't work for the people. Uh, and I think that's where my interest lies. And how can we make sure the populations of each country are able to, you know, live in a society that is a rules-based society where the rule of law is respected um, and where the consequences for your actions are treated, you know, fairly in a just system. Um, and Saudi Arabia doesn't afford that to citizens and it, you know, actually doesn't really afford that to some other countries in the region by using its money and wealth to support other dictatorships. So their actions have a direct impact on what happens in Iraq and Syria. And I think as long as we want to hold up Syria as the kind of worst case scenario um, of why people should stay quiet, then we won't get very far. But there's, you know, I think a more positive direction we can go in than what happened in Syria. What happened there, the failure of the uprising there was, you know, based for very specific reasons, you know. So so let's end with that on a more positive note, Jeet. What, what could happen in Saudi Arabia? What what would you like MBS to do? He's not going to give up power and open the country up to elections. Um, are there ways that he can shift to a more moderate policy while maintaining his power and the rule of his family? Are there ways in which Saudi could be made a better country without a full-blown embrace of democracy, which doesn't seem to be, for better or worse, particularly realistic? Well, MBS himself is on record several times. Uh, he spoke to Time magazine in 2018, and then I believe The Atlantic last year, where he made promises to limit the use of the death penalty. He was on record as saying, we're going to, you know, we know we've got a problem. We're going to scale it down. We're going to bring it in line with international law, which only permits the death penalty for um, intentional homicide with a very strict um, judicial process around that. So that would be a great starting step for Saudi Arabia to come in. And Saudi Arabia has also signed several international treaties that dictate that the death penalty should be used this way. So, you know, a good starting point is for MBS to stick by his own word and his own international legal obligations. Finally, uh, as I said, you, you work for Reprieve. Um, tell us a little bit about it um, and how people who are watching or listening who are sympathetic to what you're doing, how they can help, obviously, through donations or, or other means? Yeah, I think we're, if I say so myself, a really great organization. Um, we're based in London, but we have an office out here in DC, and we have um, you know staff across several African countries and several um, parts of South Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, we work on the death penalty in the US, um, so on the, the use of the lethal injection, but then on specific yeah. cases. Um, on the death penalty in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Um, and we also work on secret prisons like Guantanamo, um, on the secret prisons that are emerging in Northeast Syria, where foreign nationals, you know, for one reason or another, have wound up being detained without trial, without charge, um, and trying to make sure that rule of law is applied everywhere. And we also work a lot on um, drone strikes um, and things like that. So I think our real, um, our real target is to make sure that we can help people who are hurt or impacted by state overreach um, and by state violence. And if people want to support us, you know, you can sign up to our newsletter, you can donate, you can follow us on social media, you can read our report on Saudi Arabia. 